They're hunting for a man with a hammer, but should they be looking for a woman with a grudge? This case is going to have you buzzing with questions. Let me lay it out. At six o'clock on the night of March 22nd, 1989, Bridget Phillips was at the library on the Johns Hopkins University campus. At midnight, she walked through her front door and was murdered before she could take her coat off. No sign of a break-in. No sexual assault. The only clue left behind was a bloody shoe print. Now get this. It was a head tennis shoe with a distinctive pattern on the sole. But here's the really strange thing. It's size eight and a half to nine and a half, which is pretty small for a man. He'd be something like five, seven, right? So what if it was a woman? I don't know. Can you figure out this bizarre case? It has been 34 years and Baltimore police are still stumped. Let's go through this. Hey, thanks for watching True Crime Recaps. I'm Amy and I have not been able to stop thinking about this one. So let's start at the end. It's Thursday, March 23rd, 1989, 2.45 in the afternoon, Baltimore, Maryland. Christine Adams uses her spare key to open Bridget's locked apartment. There is her 22-year-old friend in a pool of blood on the floor near the door. Now, Bridget is fully clothed. She's still wearing her coat. Next to her is her backpack. It's filled with 35 pounds of books. Underneath it is the bloody footprint. Now, the FBI says it's a head-edge athletic shoot, no bigger than nine and a half. Back in 89, head was a favorite of tennis players. Bridget played tennis. She was pretty good, too, by the sounds of it. Actually, she's pretty great at everything she did. This girl was beauty and brains. She spoke six languages. She was a National Merit Scholar. She studied 15 hours a day, but she still found time to host weekly brunches at her apartment for classmates. In her spare time, she was an amateur mechanic. She did all her own car maintenance. And P.S., she was also stunning. In the fall of 1988, Bridget started her doctorate program at Baltimore's Johns Hopkins University. She was thinking she'd be a history professor, maybe something at an art museum. But really, she really wanted to be Indiana Jones because, of course, she did. Who wouldn't? Her focus was medieval history, so this girl could have actually done it. Johns Hopkins was her dream school. I mean, she sent her parents a postcard of Hopkins with the words, Here it is, Mom and Dad, the school of my dreams. She had everything to live for. And then someone took it all away. The day Bridget's body was found, she was supposed to be at a medieval history seminar. Her absence was especially notable for a couple of reasons. She was one of only two people enrolled in that seminar. Christine Adams, the friend who found her, was the other one. So when Bridget didn't show, Christine volunteered to go over to her apartment because maybe Bridget forgot. See, it was spring break that week. Typically, class would have been canceled, but this professor wanted to meet anyway. Oh, Bridget lived on the second floor of a six-unit building, just a 10 to 15-minute walk from campus. Christine, she had a spare key because she stayed over at Bridget's sometimes. She lived normally, typically during the week, with her husband in Virginia, just about an hour or so away. But the girls met about eight months before Bridget was murdered. Now, it wasn't unusual for Bridget to offer her new friend a place to stay. This girl didn't have an enemy in the world, at least not that anyone knew of, because Bridget was that type that never met a stranger. You know what I mean? She was trusting to a fault. And police think that Bridget knew her killer, probably even walked into her apartment with them. 
So who does she meet up with that night? Well, Bridget was a fixture at the Milton D. Eisenhower Library on campus. She spent so much time there that it's no surprise the library was the backdrop for a little bit of boy drama. So Bridget had her fair share of dates, but there was no one serious. And not to her, at least two men felt differently. And apparently she got into heated arguments with an ex and a rejected admirer in the library stacks. Two weeks before her murder, Bridget told her mother someone was bothering her at the library, warning her like not to date anyone else. According to the Baltimore Sun, her mother remembered Bridget saying that this man was repulsive, which seems like pretty harsh words for a girl as sweet as Bridget. But her mother was like, Um, can you please ask a security guard for help? But Bridget told her, don't worry, I've got this. And when she asked her about it later, Bridget said it was taken care of. But was it? The police focused on these two men after her murder, but nothing came of it. Wednesday, March 22nd, 1989, 6 p.m. Bridget walks across campus with her advisor. They just met about some concerns that she had about her heavy class load. Oh, he's moving toward his car and then he's headed home and she heads for the library. She's carrying that backpack loaded down with books. But her advisor, whose name has not been published, tells the Evening Sun the last thing he said to her was in Latin, to the stars through difficulties. So friends saw her at six outside the library doors. She says she's there to study. And that is the last verified sighting. The final hours of Bridget's life are still a mystery. So around 8.45, she calls a friend who lives near the library. All seems well, no cause for alarm. She sounds perfectly normal. She makes plans to drop by his house within the hour, but she never shows. So police think that she made that call from the library and then left shortly after. Probably. They don't know for sure because no one remembers actually seeing Bridget studying in the library that night. Well, we know she didn't call from her apartment because she doesn't have a phone. Yes, no phone. She didn't want one. Christine told the Baltimore Sun that she herself offered to pay to have one installed. She was worried about Bridget. Like, I don't know. What if you have an emergency, like a killer in your apartment? But Bridget said no. At some point, she got something to eat. But according to the Evening Sun, none of the restaurants on or around campus remember her coming in that night. She didn't make it at home because there was nothing like that in the fridge. A neighbor hears a cry around midnight. She thinks it's her own kids having a nightmare. She goes back to sleep. There are no signs that the killer broke in. Police think that Bridget knew this person because maybe even she spent those missing hours with them. Maybe she ran into them on her way home and then invited them inside. Whatever happened, she walks inside first, her back is turned, and she doesn't see it coming. The killer raises some kind of blunt object, possibly a hammer, and he hits the back of Bridget's head, and suddenly there's blood everywhere. She claws at the attacker. Some hairs ended up under her fingernails, but it's not enough. She falls to the floor with her bag full of books dropping beside her, and then this person continues to beat her over and over, even after she's dead. That is a lot of rage. And it looks like a crime of passion, but it's not. It's planned. They brought the weapon with them, and it's never been found. And then they cleaned up. Pieces of Bridget's bone and blood were found in the bathroom drain. And finally, they walked out the front door and locked it behind them. Bridget had cash in her pockets and expensive jewelry in the apartment. Nothing was touched 
The only thing missing were her keys. Strange, huh? No clear motive, no witnesses, no weapon found. The police questioned everyone she knew, and she knew a lot of people, but they never managed to track down anyone who spoke to her after 6 p.m. on March 22nd, 1989, except that person that she called to go over to his house. But I'm assuming they cleared him. I mentioned it was spring break. Is leading up to Easter. A lot of people were gone, but there should have been someone who saw her. Nobody did. Nobody except her killer. Fingerprinting went nowhere. She had friends and classmates over all the time, regular Sunday brunches. The only mistake her killer made was the shoe print under her book bag, size eight and a half to nine and a half. This person had to be five seven, maybe five eight. Now, is that not unusual for a man? But not for a woman. I mean, Bridget was petite. Man or woman, her attacker would have had some inches on her. Police took the floorboards with that shoe print and the door as evidence, just in case. But her case is still unsolved. Interestingly, according to the Baltimore Sun, even five years later, detectives felt like people were holding something back, like they were afraid. Like, no matter how much they tried, they couldn't get any more details about the night of Bridget's murder out of them. So what could have had them so afraid? If that's true, why has no one come forward, even now, 34 years later? So what about motive? Jealousy? Rivalry? A romance? Rejection? What about the DNA from the hair under her nails? It's not clear what happened to that, if testing is an option today. I feel like we need to organize a carpool and go to Baltimore and investigate. I can't shake this one. What is your theory? And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.